Welcome to A Higher Branch, a source of practical and powerful information for busy people dedicated to boosting their personal health and professional performance. I'm your host, Sam McCall. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of A Higher Branch, where you will be hearing the body double of Dr. Guy Winch and his identical twin brother, Gil Winch, is joining me today. Now, Gil is an organizational consultant and keynote speaker with 30 years of experience. He is also a clinical psychologist, just like Guy, with a PhD, and he has served as a personal consultant to many CEOs and leaders of large organizations, such as the Israeli National Chief of Police. Now, in this episode, we are going to be talking about all things to do with human motivation and finding human potential. And if you are an entrepreneur who hires people or manages people, then this is a must-listen episode. Now, Gil has an amazing story. After learning about the extreme worldwide unemployment of people with severe disabilities, he began searching and developing a unique managerial model that has enabled people with severe disabilities to achieve regular productivity in free market businesses for regular market wages. So when we talk about severe disabilities, we're not just talking about physical, but predominantly mental and emotional. Any disability that stops people from realizing their true potential. Let me tell you, this story is absolutely inspiring and one that was inspired or motivated after Gil himself was diagnosed with terminal cancer, which was 19 years ago, and he has beaten it. After being diagnosed with terminal cancer in 2008, he founded CY, an outsourcing services call center and for-profit social business that was staffed and managed primarily by previously unemployed and severely disabled people who were marginalized. And for the past 12 years, CY's hundreds of employees have proven in apples to apples comparisons to similar call centers staffed by non-disabled employees and based on objective metrics such as calls per hour and sales targets, that they are not only as productive as other workers, but far more loyal and far more engaged. CY has been covered in academic journals and publications featured in a United Nations brief and has been visited by representatives of 70 countries and has won numerous awards and recognitions, including a commendation by Shimon Perez, the late Israeli president, and an excellence award in social enterprise. Now, more recently, Gil's 2020 tech talk, How to Find Hidden Potential, has gone viral and is part of TED's The Way We Work series. I promise you this is an incredible podcast that I'm so looking forward to bring to you. So on that note, Gil, welcome to a higher branch. Thank you very much. Nice to be here. Now, Gil has degrees in special education and psychology, a master's degree in clinical psychology and a doctorate in psychology, all degrees from Tel Aviv University and all with honors. He has also had advanced training in treating PTSD. And Gil, you live with your wife, and two daughters and of course you're the identical twin brother of very popular guest on our podcast psychologist Guy Winch. I was lucky enough before we hit the record button to see <laughs> Guy's with you at the moment and he came and said <laughs> quick hello and everyone in our community would be very excited to know that uh, Guy is back to upgrade your life in 2022. There'll be more details on that coming up. And after this podcast, I'll also be talking to Gil about appearing. But look, what attracted me to your work, Gil, is something that Guy mentioned, that you have a new TED Talk. I listened to that TED Talk. And for a lot of the people in our community, especially a lot of senior executives and business founders and leaders, I urge you to watch this talk. It's only five minutes. It's called How to Find Potential. It's on TED and it's really one of the most inspiring five minutes because I'm sitting there listening to it and I'm saying, yes, someone is actually calling this out and someone is building a business with underdogs and you guys are matching the best of the best call centers in the world. 
So on that note, Gil, what motivated you to commence CY? Well, it started pretty much 20 years ago. On my 40th birthday, my wife said, go have a checkup. And I said, why? I'm good. She said, no, but you're 40. And apparently you have checkups when you're 40. So I went to have a checkup and I totally forgot about it. But the doctor called back quite concerned after a couple of days and, and, and wanted me to come immediately in. And, and when doctors want you to come immediately in, it's usually not because you forgot your cell phone or, you know, it's yeah. not usually good news. And basically he said, we'll do more tests, but basically you have uh, cancer, it's widespread, it's terminal, you're stage four out of four, it's a kind of cancer we don't know how to cure, and you need to know. And I was quite surprised, put it that way. And I said, what does that mean? And he said, well, you know, months, year or two, it's pretty much it. You need to know when you need to prepare. To be truthful, I'm not the kind of preparing guy. It took me two or three weeks to get organized with my own feelings, but I wasn't at any point going to prepare. I was going to fight. And I think one of the worst things that can happen when you're given bad news, bad health news, is that you were in total control of your life until that point. And then someone totally takes control away. Now the doctors have control of your life. And they're all telling you, and I went to various ones. They all had the same opinion. I did biopsies. They all said the same thing. But now it's as if they have the control over my life. And I, I don't know how to live that way. And, and after a few weeks, I, I realized that there still are two things that I have total control over. And I'm going to wield that power and that control. And the two things are my mind and my body. And I was 40. I was flabby. I was out of shape. If I would jump in front of the mirror, my body would go and take a few minutes to calm down. So I, I knew there was a lot I can do to get my body ready to, to combat whatever needs to be combated. And I was born optimistic. It's not something I need to put effort into. I think you're the same way, Sam, but I was born optimistic. Even if there's very little in the glass, that's the part I'm going to be looking at. And I realized that if I could bring my emotional state to a peak, then that would also make life difficult for any kind of cancer. And I decided that I want to find something, a social injustice I could try and do something with. And because we're not rich in any means, I knew it had to be something I could do by doing and not by investing or or donating or something. And very quickly, I heard within a couple of weeks that just by chance that severely disabled people worldwide are the most unemployed group there is. It's between 10 and 15 percent of the world is disabled. Around four to five percent are severely disabled and they need pensions in order to get by because they're blind or wheelchair bound or emotionally disabled. And when I heard that 90% of them pretty much worldwide are out of work, it didn't work out for me because I thought, you know, people on a wheelchair, they're saving their boss a chair, but all things being equal, why are they not working? Why are three quarters of people with severe emotional disabilities compliant with medication? They're good. You wouldn't necessarily even know that they have an emotional disability. Why are they out of work? Why are 80% of the legally blind people have sight left, some sight left? They can function on a computer. Why are they out of work? It didn't add up. And I, the minute I realized that it's not the disabilities that is keeping this population out of work, then I thought then maybe there's something I can do about it. And in my gut, I knew, okay, I've, I've found my cause. And I spent a year interviewing severely disabled people and employers of severely disabled people. I couldn't find many of them. They were mainly parents with a business and a severely disabled kid who worked in the business. Those were the employers I did find. And I started mapping. All the reasons I heard and, and, and could understand, the real reasons, various people were out of work. And after a year, my map was telling a totally different story of what the governments in Israel and other places, as far as I know, look at. They look at three reasons people are out of work, and I was looking at three totally different reasons. And the reasons I was looking at are things you can actually do something about. And I thought that in order to change the world, and that's what I wanted to do, because I figured if I change the world, there's not a cancer that will, you know, manage to grab hold here, cause, you know, so I'm going for that. And I thought in order to change the world, I would need to prove to the world that people with disabilities, even severe disabilities, can reach regular productivity, not in any job, and not necessarily full time, but certain jobs they can all reach uh, regular productivity if you realize what they need and we're not understanding what they really need. And I figured if I 
build a free market company staffed and managed entirely by severely disabled people, and we, we did start out that way, that would be a great showcase through which I could convince government and other employers and disabled people themselves who have totally given up that they're not out of work because they lack ability. They're out of work because we lack understanding of what they need in order to bring the abilities they do have uh, to the fray. And that took another four years. Now, if you're following the whole cancer story, I mean, I'm like way past my expiration date. I also got an awful lot of disability percentages because of a short expiration date. Apparently, I was considered severely disabled because I wasn't supposed to be around long. But, you know, it's going well. And that's how it started out. And after five years of sort of research, I figured, okay, and now I'm going to find a company to do this with because I, I don't know how to build a call center and I don't want to build a call center. And for a year, I looked for anybody to partner with and, and do this wonderful thing. And I'm not a shy person. I, I, I know how to talk to, to CEOs and owners of companies and they, they were all lovely and they all said, this is such a lovely idea. Now, I'm going to be finishing my job in about a couple of years. Why don't you come back then? Because I can't do it. One guy outside in a wheelchair with a sign, I got fired from here, and everything we put into public relations is going to go down the drain. So it's a lovely idea, but nobody wanted to do it. No one. Yes. And I realized that I'm going to have to do it. And, you know, life expectancy is supposed to be questionable. I'm 45 or 6 at this point. This is something I need to talk to my wife about. It's not something I can just say, let's take all our savings and put them into adventures no one's ever done. And luckily, I married really well. And my wife and I decided when we got married that we would invest in experiences and not in real estate because we want to have meaningful experiences. And we discussed it and my wife said, this is like one of the bigger ones. And if you think this is doable, let's do it. And we met with lots of managers of foundations about people with disabilities, and we met with government officials and academia, and there was not one person who thought we should do it. Everyone thought this was a horrific idea. The range was from, this is not gonna work till you are absolutely stupid. One of them said, let me just put this into perspective. You wanna take all your savings and take the Paralympic team to the regular Olympics and you expect them to podium. And my response was, yeah, pretty much, that's the plan. And everybody thought it wouldn't work, and I knew it would. I really believe in people, and I, and I knew it would. And we went for it. And in the beginning of 2008, that was about seven years after I was diagnosed already, we managed to convince one company to start working with us. And we opened a call center, and it was a call center for one reason only. The world is skeptical. If I'm going to be proving that these guys are as productive as anybody else, it has to be a place where metrics so important that you can always show that here are 10 teams, no disabled people. Here's my team. We're doing as well as. Yeah. And that's why we did call centers. Plus, in Israel, a call center is a student work. So there's lots of employment attrition and there's lots of demand. So we figured we'll be an outsourced call center and we'll always have enough work if we can supply a good enough product. And we started with one team and we just screened for what we thought would be potential because everybody turning up, no one would accept them because for so many years at home, anything to do with confidence and self-efficacy and, and all that is really severely diminished. So they wouldn't pass regular screening. And, and the model we put together took that into account. And we had someone even who was nearly totally deaf in that course and, and it's phone work, which is, you know, shouldn't really go together. But after the course and the initial team, I spent the first three months apologizing to our customer that our results are so poor and begging him to give us just a bit more time. And I kept on pointing out that we are getting better. We were 25% of where everybody else was immediately after the course. But after like two or three weeks, we were already up to 60% where everybody else was. And they were saying, how long do you think they're going to be improving for? And I said, forever. I don't see any reason for them to stop. They were so motivated. And some of them were just so proud to have like a name tag. They were like thrilled to have a name tag. And it's difficult to understand, but when you're not part of something and someone's opening a door for you to get to be part of, and it's something is life, basically. So most people will enter that door with a lot of fear and trepidation and anxiety, but they will enter it with a lot of determination as well and a lot of motivation to actually get a life. 
because it's much more than a job, it's company. I think one of the most strong things that hit me is that what we are actually doing as a society is we're taking our weakest link, those people with a medical condition that gives them a disability, and we are putting them through two other horrors, even worse than their disability. We're making them the poorest of the poor because you have to live off pensions. They're below minimum wage in Israel. And you're talking about people who can't even pay for medication sometimes. They just don't have any money. And they are totally isolated, which is probably the worst thing because there's even research in psychology that emotionally people will be better off if they are bullied and harassed and treated terribly than if they are ignored and ostracized. That makes you much more emotionally wounded than being bullied and treating horribly. Just give me any kind of attention. And we're talking about people whose community is forgot about and locked away in their homes. And who are they? They're four to five percent of our brothers and sisters and parents and children. It's us. There's no race difference, color difference, gender difference. It's four to five percent of every population. And we're treating them horribly because we're taking one bad thing and we're adding two other horrific ones. And I just thought if that's something I could help create any kind of change, that will change so much misery. It's so important, I felt. And it's true the difference after a few months of people who came in and they can't even make eye contact and they mumble and, and they're sure that they won't get accepted. And when you ask them to tell you why we, you should choose them, they say, I wouldn't choose me. And it's like, as worth as you can imagine. And a few months later, they're giving talks. It's amazing. And we've had five weddings. Wow. Which is, and it's not always a disabled person with another disabled person. And we even have grandchildren, I call it. And kids have been born from those five couples who met in the call center. And, and now they have company and they have friends and they have a purpose. And they can also do more than call center work because they meet visitors and they're part of the academy, which I'll get to later, but it's an amazing thing. So we started out in 2008 with one customer who gave us a chance and with 15 guys. And by the end of the year, we had about 50. Wow. I thought, wow, that's really great. Let's get another customer in. And it took a year. Even though customers could come, listen, see the metrics, the bias, and it is so ingrained that it took us another year to get someone brave enough to join us and, and give us a chance. And it started moving along from then. And after about two or three years, we had people turning up who weren't disabled, but they seemed that they pretty much needed us. And I think one of my managers put it best. He said, our model is great for people because it's all about happiness and it's great for people, but it's necessary for severely disabled people. And it's necessary for some people from other populations who need that kind of environment in order to flourish and can't flourish in the tense workplace we've put together today. And I, I know I've been going on in length, but there's just one, one thing I, I wanted to add on. If you think about it for the 200,000 years of us being homo sapiens, work, that means providing, has always been done with family and tribe, if you think about it. And if you have no ability, then stay in camp and skin or cook. But there isn't any non-participants because you needed everyone. And you were always working with people who knew you and cared about you deeply because you needed everyone in that tribe. That's how we developed as homo sapiens. That's why we are such social people. If you think about it, until 200 years ago, we were in a horrific state physically at work. People were doing the coal mines and all sorts of physical work, which was terrible for their health, but we've managed to take care of that in, in, in a lot of the modern world where you have rules and regulations and, and you have to take people's physical state into consideration and their job. But what we've done is we've traded the hard physical labor, the hard emotional labor, because when you were busting your back in the fields, nobody was sitting over you talking about your metrics, talking about the end of the year report that you haven't put in. There was none of that. There was none of the emotional pressure that so many people experience at work. And if you just look around you, I guess that half of the people you know at least have work-related anxiety, depression, harassment, bullying, isolation, whatever you want, but they have work-related emotional problems. And why is that? 
how did we let that happen? We've given up the physical hardship, hard labor, and now we put ourselves into emotional hard labor. And it's killing us. And it's ruining our happiness. It's sometimes ruining our family life. And I don't think it should be that way because there's no room for other people to come in who can't take that. So I think that all our model is about creating a happy and safe workplace. I tend to the well-being of my employees and they tend to the business and they tend to the customers. If you want people to give customers good service, treat them magnificently and they'll be happy to transfer that treatment onto your customers. And that's what I manage. We manage our employees' well-being. We have lots of rules. We do lots of things opposite, like the screening, other places. But I need to see smiling and happy people, even though it's called sent to work, even though people call and scream at you, I still need to see happy faces. And the happier I can make them, the happier they make the business, the happier they make the customers. They'll turn up or when they don't have a shift even just because they miss everyone. I want to create that community safe place at work. And I think anybody who does would benefit greatly from the most engaged workforce you could even think of. Absolutely. And your business really is an example of how a business can flourish by adopting that model because you now employ hundreds of people and you're an organizational consultant to a number of CEOs and large organizations, but you also have many companies that are outsourced their call center activities to yourself, correct? Yes, but even more than that, what happened was after 10 years, three years ago, after 10 years, I called myself into a little talk. I have a lot of self-compassion, which is great because then I'm never upset at myself for making mistakes, so I make a lot of them try to learn from them and not make them again, but I feel free to try things and make mistakes because I'll never toss and turn about why did I do that? I I don't have that. Tried, I'll fix it next. I'm good with myself. I don't kill myself over ruminations and stuff like that at all. And when I looked at where we'd come after 10 years, we have hundreds of employees and we've changed the call center business in Israel totally. 10, 13 years ago, you would have no one looking for disabled people. Every call center in Israel hires disabled people. They've all figured out, wait, this is good job for them. And they stay much longer than other people. And they consult with us sometimes about all sorts of things. But basically, every wanted ad you'd see now for call centers will have something about disabled people as well. And we've had a huge ripple effect there. We've had 70 countries visit us from abroad just to see this new model happening. And this was all true three years ago. And is the world changing? Absolutely not. Is Israel changing? Ah, pretty much no, slightly. But after 10 years, I thought that the impact we would have would be much, much bigger. And I realized that the strategy of building a showcase and and hoping that it will create the change needed, it's just not strong enough. It's just not good enough. Change is not going to happen that way. And what I did was I just held a lot of one-on-one conversations with people who are intelligent and are very different fields to see if I could glean or or learn something that would give me a hint of where we should be going. And I think I did, and we changed our strategy to the following strategy. I realized that the world isn't changing because, first of all, the world lacks knowledge. We were talking to lots of companies that were hiring disabled people, but they weren't getting to regular productivity. Company either fired them or was sort of stuck with them, but they didn't want any more. They didn't know how to go about the hiring, the screening, and the managing of disabled people, and especially people with, who need a emotionally warmer and safer environment. They didn't know how to go about that. So the first thing I realized was we have a model. We should be teaching it to companies so they have the knowledge of finding the right people and managing them so they will have success stories and they can build on that. And it took us about a year and a half to put together our employer academy, which is a bunch of courses for HR, for screening, for direct managers, and all sorts of other things in order for us to start getting the knowledge out there. And the amazing thing about our training academy is we are the only place, as far as I know in the world, where HR managers will come in And they would have total bias, for instance, against people with emotional disabilities. And then they sit and they train and practice on CY's employees. They don't know who they are, what they are, how they are. 
and they get terribly impressed by them. And then they find out oh, all three had 100% emotional disabilities. And then they go, oh, and things happen. And these courses are amazing because it's all hands-on with our employees and they give such amazing feedback about should and shouldn't and how and what. And they are so impressive that everyone says, these are courses that are one day a week, but it's two days. It takes us one day we spend at the academy and another day just to get over it because we are so overwhelmed emotionally by the people we meet. And we talk about superheroes and, and Wonder Woman is Gal Gadot, she's Israeli, but really Wonder Woman is working for me. And I have lots of them. And we have so many people with stories that, that you wouldn't even make it, seriously, they wouldn't make it through Hollywood as, as unbelievable. And what they're doing with those backstories, they are so inspiring and they totally change people's outlook on what severe disability is from all kinds. And the Employer Academy is doing amazingly well. We didn't have really much marketing, but the marketing we had, we stopped after two weeks because we were inundated with people who wanted to come and train. After the first course, there were raves about it. So that's one thing that's happening. It's part of our new strategy. And we now have our first international organization we're consulting with. I'm not allowed to say their name yet, but there are 20 countries which they operate out of. And the board has decided they want to get to 5% people with disabilities in all their workforce. And we're the consultants. So now translating everything to English and making it all adjustable for Zoom, Corona and other things. But that's an amazing thing that gets me really excited because they already are employees working in various companies because of the academy. Where do we find the academy online? It's on, our, it's on the website under Employer Academy. Uh, CY is, in Hebrew, it's Kol Yechol. But yeah. I have a lot of compassion to people who don't do. So I went with CY just to make life easier. Kol Yechol. Um, yeah, Kol but, but, yeah. And you can get, uh, and, and you can find it in, uh, just with my name in, in Google. And it's easily, it's easy to find. It's C-A-L-L Yechol, as it sounds, Y-A-C-H-O-L, L. And there's a, a whole academy there about our various courses. There's an English site as well, and, and you can read about it. So that's a new part of our strategy, which we're really excited about. And everybody is, because it's so empowering for our employees as well. Because now they get to do other work other than the call center work, and, and they feel that they're having an additional impact on things. It, it's amazing. And the second thing I realized is that I really have no voice. I mean, we talked about Guy, who has an I really think he's the... He's the world leader in, in emotional health. And I really think he does such an amazing job at that. And he does have an international voice. I'm known, best case, as the twin with the cancer, because in one of his talks, there were lots of, of pictures of me uh, with no hair and, or something. But nobody really knows who we are and what we do, because we've been putting all our energy into the do, into the doing and not into the talking about the doing. So I realized I need a bit of a voice. And that's why I was very happy when Ted said, Let, let's do a talk about your screening process. And that was the beginning of The Voice. And I want to get into that as well, because there's a lot of really good tips for HR professionals out there. But just to recap and just to bring everything you've said within the context of the higher branch framework. So we're talking about the tree of work and the tree of friendship, really. What Gil has managed to do is... The tree of work for us in our eight areas of life or the eight trees of life, the tree of work fills a fundamental human need for fulfillment, for purpose, to have a purpose. And yes. the other friendship as well, you know, most of our friends come from our learning years and our working years. A lot of my friends come from work because that's just the way life is at the moment. We're so busy yeah. that, that we become friends with the people we work with. And you're also meeting the fundamental human need for belonging at work. And I absolutely am so inspired how you have given those two fundamental human needs to people that have been marginalized. But the other insight that I just want to give is I couldn't help as you were talking is that you are saving many lives. When I say saving may not be physical, but definitely mentally and emotionally, but can't help but feel that they've also saved your life in the process because this amazing journey you're on is just, you're so passionate about it and it's contagious. And I know people are listening now and thinking, well, I want to do this, you know, as well. I want to learn this. And that's why I asked for where we can find the Employer Academy. 
But I just wanted to make those uh, couple of comments there for people that are listening. So they see what we're talking about here within the context of our framework, because those fundamental human needs for fulfillment and belonging are so powerful. Like you said, Gil, people would rather be in a job where they're actually not being treated very well than yeah. be ignored. And I, Absolutely. I've that, yeah, I've read that somewhere. Actually, it was Yuval Harari who said people are more petrified at being ignored than they are of being abused. <laughs> yes. And it's something to do with our human evolution as well. But I want you to talk more. But I also, whilst you're talking, is I want you to also tell us what really motivates people because you're really tuned in on that. You're motivating these people that have been marginalized, that had emotional disabilities. And like, how do you get them to come out of their shell and give of themselves in a way that where they don't feel judged? You mentioned where they feel safe as well. I mean, that is a challenge for business with people who have no disability whatsoever. But even more so when you're hiring people who don't make eye contact, lack self-esteem and self-confidence. So if you could tell us, because you're a psychologist as well, what really motivates people? When I teach managers, I tell them there's one word in managing, which is neglected. And I think it's the most powerful word in managing. It's called caring. If your team knows, realizes, understands that you care for them deeply as people, don't have to like them, but you care for them deeply as people because they're helping you get to where you want to get and they're doing it together. If they feel caring from their manager, they will do anything that manager asks. And caring is such an important word in managing and managers don't wield it enough and sometimes not at all. And the more senior they get, caring fades out, Excel fades in <laughs> and profits fade in and then they lose the motivations of people. And I think it's such a powerful tool. I don't understand why don't, more managers don't realize it and wield it. Because in every company, you have those managers that know how to wield that tool, and they are the most popular managers, and everybody cries when they leave and go elsewhere, and everybody works overtime for them without necessarily punching the clock, and wonderful things happen. And there's so much research about engagement, employees that are really engaged, you know, how much more they give, 25% more productivity for the same cost, that's huge when it comes to profit. I really think managing by caring is such a great motivator. And, and that's what we try to have as a creed in the company. Yes, yes. So, so you mentioned something there about engagement. Gallup published a poll 20 months ago, which said that globally, 87% of workplace were disengaged from their work. Yes, yes, I saw that. That's, that's absolutely crazy. So you had 87% of people sitting in the workplace that didn't have their heart and soul in the job. And I, I thought that was a, a really uh, frightening statistic. And I remember I was giving a keynote at the Workplace Wellness Summit here in Sydney. And we had a lot of wellness consultants up on stage talking about fruit bowls and flu shots and yoga and meditation and sleep pods. And I got up on stage and I think I was the only entrepreneur in the room that actually employs people. And I said, look, with respect to everyone that's been on stage, I said, wellness programs like that don't work. And I remember sharing that with Guy at the time, and he gave me a study which showed that wellness programs can have the opposite effect because there's this expectation for you to be well and happy at work and to go for the jog at lunchtime and to be in the yoga studio. So I made the observation that if you have a broken culture, if people don't feel like they're cared for, then no amount of wellness programs and fruit bowls and fruit juices and yoga is going to fix that, right? Totally agree. I mean, I, I, I always say, what does it matter how plush the chair you're sitting in is and how wonderful the boardroom you're sitting in is when you're being harassed and pressured and screamed at, even yeah. though there's a lovely cafeteria around it, what does it matter? It has no, it really, it has no meaning. It's yeah. all emotional. And, and, and that's the biggest part that gets neglected and, and shouldn't. So your business is focusing on the primary issues or the primary factors in determining the happiness of people. If people are happy in their job, 
and uh, they feel good about going to work. They love the people who they're working with. They feel safe. They feel cared for. That's the best wellness program on the planet. <laughs> Absolutely. And you'll get the best employees on the planet. The most engaged employees will give you everything they've got. They'll work as if it's theirs. Now, let's talk about recruitment because it all starts okay. with recruitment, doesn't it? So we've been talking about the psychology of what motivates people in the job. But for someone that's listening now, how do you find these people? And in the recruitment process, in the interview, how do you know? How do you know who to hire? Okay, so I'd like to answer that while telling you a story about Rachel. Because it is all about the employees and you're interviewing me. They're not around at the moment. But but I want to tell you, I want to answer that while I'm talking a bit about Rachel. So about three years ago, we got a CV of uh, someone called Rachel. The social worker in the town she lives in sent it in. Rachel was 59, had never worked before, and had a background in prostitution, is what the CV said. So the, the real work experience she had was prostitution. Pretty much all, and she had 100% emotional disability. That 100% emotional disability is given for people either who are deeply clinically depressed or have other emotional problems that really require strong medication and are considered something that she's going to be having for the rest of her life and unstable in one way or another. So that's what we knew about her. And because there is no CV that we won't actually look at, because most of them have nothing in it. So we looked at the CV and the recruiting called Rachel and they said, she seems a bit fiery. Now, some ex-prostitutes are fiery, not in a good way, but they said she seems a bit fiery and they asked her to come into an interview and she came in late. We found out that she came in late because she didn't have any money for the bus, by the way. And the interview consisted of her telling her story. Basically, this is the story. I'll, I'll do it short. She grew up in a bad family. Her mother died when she was 12. The brothers and the brother's friends started raping her since she was 12 and the father took her out of school so she could cook for everyone. And when she was 17, they married her off to one of the rapists. And by 19, she had two kids, but her husband was taken and put in prison because that's the kind of surrounding she grew up in. Welfare took her kids away for adoption and she found herself at the age of 19 on the streets for 40 years. She lived on the streets, prostitution and alcohol. She never even was willing to go to a shelter because she was afraid of welfare because they took her children away. She remembered in a vague alcohol fog. Children grew up, opened the case, found each other, and then decided to go and look for mum. And she says, so I was sitting where I sit to wait for clients. And I was, of course, drunk because you can't do it when you're not totally drunk. And you only do it when you need more money for alcohol anyhow. And a car stopped with a couple. I got in, but they didn't drive to the regular place. They they started driving like far away. And I thought they're kidnapping me. And I started screaming. And then the woman turned around and said, mom, everything will be okay. And they took her to the the girl's house uh, who had like a shed at the end of the garden, which they managed to fix up with a shower and a bed. And she said, you know, leave me in here for two weeks so I can dry up from the alcohol. And there was an amazing social worker involved there as well. And then they said, fine, so now we need to get you, you started to drive from alcohol, we need to get you work. And she said, I don't even know what a computer looks like. I've never, you know, literally in the street 40 years. So they sent her to a computer course, which we rejected from because she didn't know how to turn on the computer. But they sent her back to the course and she managed to finish it. And then they sent her over to us, but they didn't know she doesn't even have enough money to get there. So she walked over to the interview. She told that story and she was accepted to work. Within three months, she was the best on the team on her team and she works for an insurance company and you realize she would never get accepted anywhere close to a financial company with her background. And then she decided that she has to give meaning for her lost 40 years of life. And the meaning she will give is UCY as a stage in which she can convince welfare to look for other 100% disabled prostitutes and get them off the street as well. And she felt that the more she can get off the street, the more meaning the lost years will have. And when you see someone in an interview who's gone through a horrific life, but there's a spark there yet, in spite of, give them a chance. Often that spark will grow into a huge flame and sometimes it won't. Give them the chance as if it will. We have like a reverse screening process in which 
we first of all set up the screening in the most comfortable way possible so people could bring out the best in themselves and not the worst in themselves like screening usually is. But the TED is about that and, and, and they can see about that in the TED talk. But beyond the actual screening process, you can often look at people's background and talk to them about all sorts of things. Because for instance, we'll have people coming in who don't make eye contact and mumble. And we're looking for someone who can be a bit assertive on this kind of phone call. And they look like they couldn't even like be assertive to a mouse, but they do have two kids. So we would ask them, when your kids step out of line, how do you react? When was your kids get you most upset? And then you see this woman who couldn't even make eye contact and she's so timid and she's so afraid become like, when it's her kids, no, and she's this and she's that. And she has that, it's in her range. She just has no idea how to bring it here, but it's in her range. Or you find out that she finished high school with a full diploma. So it couldn't be that she's as stupid as she seems now or him. And they seem absolutely like dim-witted, but they finished a high school diploma. It has to be the emotional aspect that's lowering all their current care. We keep on looking for collaborative evidence somewhere. Yes. But they have certain capacity. They have certain abilities. And if we can find it anywhere, even in the simulations we do anywhere, then we'll give those people a chance. Because if it's in their range where it used to be, then maybe we can reawaken it. And that's what the whole screening thing is, is could they make it and not could they fit what I'm looking for? The whole point is, if you're waiting to feed for people who will fit what you're looking for, we'll never hire the underdogs. We'll always hire the alphas. By the way, they'll leave you for more money elsewhere. I really think that every company with a good backbone of underdogs employees, those will be the most loyal, engaged, happy, that's going to be the real motor of the company and not one or two stars will move on eventually and their loyalties lie elsewhere. You save a person, they're going to give you, you know, most of us really do appreciate and give back. And I always say they're 5%, I call them 5% of people who aren't worthy. I don't know if it's 5%, by the way, I just made that statistic up. I'm not managing the 95% because of the 5%. I'm not putting all sorts of barricades down for the 95%, just the 5% of people can't cheat. Or I'm, I'm not managing by the 5 I'm managing by the ma huge majority. And if the other 5% are going to like utilize us or be unfair or even sue us, it happened once, I'm not going to change anything because of them. And most companies manage by the 5%, you know, with those guidelines. And uh, I want to manage by the huge majority. So it's all about seeing what that people, do they have anything in them that you can ignite and bring forth? Because the difference between day one and day 50 or day 100 or day 365 could be so, so, so dramatic. Everyone's worthy of a chance. Absolutely. That's, absolutely. That's so beautiful. Loved hearing that. And I hope for the people who are listening who are in a position where they either manage a team or hire that's such a beautiful lesson. And it's not something that I'm agreeing with Gil because I like what he's saying. It's because I've actually adopted very similar. Now, we haven't hired underdogs intentionally. We went looking for them like you have or nowhere near that. But whenever we have actually put out an ad and had people come in, I've had the odd occasion where you know, I've been told by the managers, oh, I don't know, we've excluded these people early on in my business. And I've employed over 5,000 people over 1995. So in the early days, I used to actually, uh, I got a really big kick out of looking for those nuggets of gold that yeah. are there. And I built my business by restructuring the way banking and finance transactions were performed. Traditionally, it was done by lawyers who would sit in an office and they would dictate something on a machine and give it a little cassette to a secretary <laughs> sitting outside and dutifully, you know, typing up these documents. But I went in and I said, well, we don't need lawyers to do this part of the process and we don't need experienced paralegals for that. So I completely respect the process and figured out that I created new categories of employees. And on the back of that, I figured out that we can hire people with no skill. And we hide on attitude first, skill set second. 
for um, absolutely for those categories. So long story short, I would interview a lot of these people and in conjunction with the HR manager and the operations manager and I'd sit there and say very little. And then at the end of that interview, they'd say, okay, well, let's pass on that one. And there'd be many occasions where I'd say, not so quick. I, I yeah. saw something there. I, and I remember in, on one occasion, I actually said, this person needs this job more than what we need them. Yeah. Which is not very, it's entrepreneurially naive you know, just to hire someone out of charity. But I just said, this person needs us. They need this job and I want to give it to them. An HR manager thought I was nuts and, you know, the manager's going to object. But this person ended up being one of the best employees in that department, eventually took over as manager and outgrew the position. And they came to see me and I said, I want to go back to uni and I want to study this and I want to go and get that job. And look, they did leave to go to another Uh, but there's no requirement in my business for people to stay but I just got such a thrill and I use this person time and time and again as an example to say don't dismiss the person who looks down doesn't make eye contact they're under a lot of pressure make them feel comfortable in the interview talk to them on the level and look all this is in your TED talk so I I don't want to spoil it because I love that TED talk but when I was listening to it I started thinking you know I have that same passion in me that Gil does about giving underdogs a chance and early on I was criticized by other law firms saying oh that's Sam's business over there they hire all the rejects he's got all these young people that don't know what they're doing and look at us we hire amazing lawyers and of course, we're now number one in our industry. It's <laughs> daylight second. And, and I say, yes, send a, just, what's that, you know, the Statue of Liberty um, transcript where they say, send us your underdogs, send us, yeah. we'll turn them into superstars. And look, we did it by accident. It wasn't deliberate like you've done. It was just a natural extension of who I am as a person. Yeah. So I, we have two core values in our business. That is empathy and humility. And I insist on all the managers having, because you can't have one without the other. And it takes humility to have empathy. And I, and likewise, I, I have actually sat on third interviews after I've been told by my HR department and the manager that this person is a superstar. I can't wait for you to give the Meet ticket them. approval. And I've gone away and I've said no. And they say, what? This person, look, did you see their academic record, how smart they are? And I said, yes, but there's no humility. And without humility, they're going to treat clients not very well. They're going to look down on people. They're not going to fit in the team. And look, it took many years, but my team got it. And I remember one interview where I interviewed a superstar and I started pulling the threads with some of my questions that they unraveled before my eyes. And after the interview, I said to my managers, did you see the arrogance? Did you see the pride? Did you, is that what you want? Yeah. So, you know, so my message to people who are listening is don't be afraid to hire the underdogs. Many great nations were built by underdogs. You know, the nation of Australia, America. Mm-hmm. Um, right. And you will be pleasantly surprised with how people can develop. And, and some people will really surprise you. And that's what builds... The, the soul and the culture of an organization. It's a bit like, you know, you can go to cities in the world that are so well organized and everything is just so well structured. You know, the lights are on the roads are perfect, the lines on the road, the infrastructure, the drainage, but you go away feeling like it's a clinical experience. And then you'll go to yeah. a city like Rome or the first time I went to Beirut, it was chaos. Right. <laughs> but, but it was like, there was soul there. There was soul in the smells and the sights and the sounds. And I think the greatest companies of the future, you know, you can copy a person's trade secrets. You can copy their software. You can copy their systems, their processes. You can't copy the culture. No. And if you have a, uh, a beautiful mix of underdogs and you have this environment for them to shine then you're going to build an amazing culture like, you know, Gil has with uh, CY. So it's an amazing story. Look, that's my two bobbers worth there, Gil, on that. But I have to say something, Sam. The values in CY are different from any other company. I've never heard of a company 
that has values like we do until you just mentioned your core values because all the values of the companies I know are for the good of the company or the company's clients. We will be transparent. We will give you the best this. We will do that. The values in CY are for the benefit of the employees and, and yeah. humility is a core value because first of all, I, I always tell people that a true self-confidence breeds humility. You don't need the accolade. Always nice to have. You don't need them. You're not working for the accolades. You have it inside. When you're working for the accolades, there's something missing inside and true self-confidence comes with humility. And that's why humility is so important. And when you have people who have been looked down on for a lot of their lives, they can never be looked down on and see why. I keep on saying, you know, you could be the senior manager, but everybody below you are better human beings. They volunteer their time with all sorts of needy. They're a better parent than you are. You are just senior. And that entails you one privilege, other than probably a better salary. You get to decide. That's all it gives you. You're not better than anybody else. You just get to decide. And in CY, you are not allowed to project power down, only up. The only person in the company everybody can scream at is me. And a lot of them take advantage of that. (laughs) (laughs) Because there's a lot of angst sometimes and things you want to get off your chest. And people say, you in the car? Good. Turn down the volume and they let fly. But there will be no talking down to anyone. And we even have a rule about if you see that happening, what you do, because you want people to feel the same as everybody else. We're all people. Some are a bit more senior, but we're all people. And you're not better than anybody else. And once you have a company that realizes that, then people really feel safe. And then it brings us back to where we were when we started. They'll just give you everything they have to give. And you won't beat that team. You can't beat that team. You can't beat that team. Absolutely. I can't help but think that I remember when Jim Collins brought out the book, Good to Great. Yes. It was talked about companies that were focused on people in those companies were ambitious, aspirational, and it was all about being great. But then Wharton Business College published a paper called From Memory Firms of Endearment in 2010. That's clever firms of endearment, yeah. Yeah, and they took it to that next level and they showed that companies that were focused on making a difference rather than on profit, ironically outperformed the S&P 500 by a ratio of nine to one. So here are companies (laughs) not focused on profit, making more profit because they were focused on the the customer and making a difference. So it was about giving. But I, I can't help feel now... I'd love to see a study on this, which is the next progression. It's like version 3.0. It's not about you. It's not about the customer, but it's about the happiness of the people, like you said. So if you, I wonder, you know, what companies can achieve by focusing on their own people in the way that you do and hiring more underdogs and making it people focused or employee focused. I can't help but feel that... Lowering the emotional hard labor all around. Which, by the way, is a For instance, I try and make all sorts of rules in the company and I get shot down. I wanted to make a rule that mothers of kids can't answer emails after five. All the mothers wouldn't agree. I have the privilege, and I'm sure that I have the privilege on just sitting on the brakes. I never use the gas. I never have to use the whip. I never have to tell people to put in more. I spend most of my time saying, no, you're on holiday, get off the mailing list. No, you should be at home right now, go. I'm just working the brakes all the time in the company. It's a wonderful feeling that you don't have to motivate anyone. You just have to rein in the horses sometimes. You don't want them to overwork. And, and that's what you get when you have a place that focuses on the people in it. And how many directors or managers do you know of whose yearly bonus is contingent on the happiness of their employees. Not many, I would guess, right? It's contingent on the happiness of the directors, shareholders, and maybe customers. But your employees could be as miserable as as you want and you'll still get a huge bonus. There's something so basically wrong about that, if you ask me. Yeah, and I've I've had this discussion with a number of senior executives in some of the major banks here in Australia, and they tell me that The fundamental reason for that is because you can't measure happiness and they get rewarded bonuses based on what you measure, which is the bottom line. So they can measure cost savings if they introduce a piece of software 
They can measure the, the productivity targets of people meeting KPIs, but how that you can lift the average by having, you know, measuring people's happiness, well, you just can't do that. They, they can't measure, they can't quantify it in the short term. And that's why I mentioned it would be great to see a study and track how companies who are focused on the happiness of their people, how they would perform financially over a three-year period, five-year period, 10-year period. And I think a lot of people would be surprised uh, yeah. by that. I, I agree. And I think you can actually measure happiness. You can measure it not directly because everybody would have a different terminology, but you can measure engagement. You can measure employee attrition. You can measure even sick days. You know, how much people with a bit of sniffles, and I'm not talking about the COVID era, uh, turn up or don't turn up. I have people working from home. They're sick, but they're working from home. They don't want to give up a work day and they don't want to not do. You can measure all sorts of other things that will give you a good gauge of happiness, maybe not as exact as the Excel, but they will tell you a true story. And again, for people who are, whose life goes way much more by the Excel than by people, then they say you can't, but of course you can. And I, and I agree with you. I think if you did and you would, and there was like this longitudinal study, it might change stuff. Absolutely. Yeah. So there's a, a call to action there for <laughs> the, some of these business schools. But it's been an absolute inspiration talking about this subject. And, uh, you know, I want to take it into so many areas. I'd love to explore that with you in the future, Gil, because there, there's so much to uh, human resources. I say that to be generic, but that word internally is not allowed. So externally, my HR manager is known as HR manager. Internally, she's known as a PD manager or people development. Excellent. Yeah, so, yeah. yeah. And, you know, it is the biggest cost item on your balance sheet is your people cost. It's what determines culture. It's what determines your longevity in business. And I, I don't think that there is enough emphasis on the happiness of employees and on hiring underdogs in your business. I think a lot of wellness consultants are missing the point and they're missing the point because they're focusing on the comfort uh, of the surroundings and providing they're going for the easy. They're going for the easy. The physical, that's yeah. the easy. It, physical, that's ex- exactly right. It's, you know, no one wants to have the year. Uh, no one wants to focus on the mental or the emotional because that's the hard stuff. But you've made it very easy for us. And that's some, a message I'm going to take back to my own managers with one word, you mentioned it, is just to introduce an element of caring unconditionally. Caring. You've got to display that in the interview. You've got to display that in the first few days of them being hired. So one of the things that I, I insist on, any new person that gets employed in our business, they need to buddy up with someone who will sit with them in, the, you know, in our internal cafeteria yeah. and show them where the shops are. One of the saddest things to witness is someone, especially someone that's young, fresh out of university, and I'll walk into the breakout room and they're sitting there by themselves. And many times I have found myself, I I just can't let them do that. So I'll go and sit next to them and wait for them to finish their lunch. And then after that, I'll say, why wasn't someone sitting next to this person? They felt alone. When I walk through my office, like yourself, I'm blessed with having children. I have two boys and a girl. And uh, when I walk through that office, I have only one lens. And this is a message to anyone that employs people or owns a business. My lens is if my son or daughter was sitting in that chair or walking through these corridors, would they be happy? Uh, Would they feel respected? Would they feel like someone cared for them? And if I can't say that in the affirmative, then I can't sleep that night. I'm always thinking of ideas to make sure that everyone feels like that. Now, I think if you walk into your office with that lens, then I don't think you can go wrong in applying a lot of what Gil's principles and what Gil has just shared with us. It's amazing because I I always say, I want us to treat our employees like we want our children to be treated wherever they go and work because they're someone's children. So please let's treat them like we want our own children to be treated. And and really we're all, most of us are all good people. And you know, Sam, you know how amazing it is, the whole giving thing, it really changes your own life and and your own happiness. And, And it's more fulfilling than anything you can think of. And also once you start, it like sucks you in. 
And it's a wonderful thing. And I'm not a religious person. This is the shot. Let's make it as substantial and significant and uplifting as possible, because this is our shot and this is what it's all about. And I think cancer and thinking about death and having that loom somewhere makes you a happier person. It reminds you what you don't want to lose and why you're around and what you want to accomplish and how you want to utilize your time. And I'm never willing to waste a beautiful day because of some angst or another. Because there was a time when I was praying for these days, and and I'm not going to I'm not going to waste any of them, and I think it, it makes for a happier life, really. That's so beautiful. That's a beautiful uh, note to end on, Gil. Thank you so much for appearing for your first time on the, a Higher Branch podcast, and uh, please stay well until we meet, hopefully next January, and uh, yeah, until uh, next time. Thank you very much, Gil, and say goodbye to so Guy much. as well for me. I will. I had a wonderful okay. time. Thank you so well, much. It's lovely. Wonderful. Okay. Thank you very much uh, for listening and live consciously, my friends. <laughs>